0: Well, it had to happen sooner or later, didn't it? Thank you, Shirley. I see that nodding head. You're wondering what I'm talking about, right? Good. You know how the church is always accused of being way behind everybody else in society and we kind of get on with society's ideas after the fact and adopt things and then kind of Christianize them and make them our own? We're you're, you're aware of that, aren't you? Church is accused of that all the time. Well, it had to happen sooner or later. I'm doing this sermon series. Game over. The final score is? We win. Popular Mechanics. February 2012. Game over. Twelve ways the world could end in 2012. I hate it when they steal my good ideas. I started preaching this series in September of last year, okay? So, thank you. No, I, I, uh, I shared that tongue-in-cheek, but also for another reason. I, I thought of uh, retitling this popular preaching. See how they'd like it but uh, I I couldn't bring myself to do that. But I did want you to know this. Um, This is probably the most requested sermon series that I've ever done. And uh, I don't take credit for that. I'm just trying to obey the Lord and do what he tells me to do. But I've had numerous people say to me, you need to put this in a in a form that's handy for people available to people so that they can continue to receive blessing from this and give this away as a gift. And so we're in the process of putting together this, uh, three ring binder that will have, um, all 28 messages. Uh, we're throwing in the, um, Three messages I did at Christmas. Christmas revealed Jesus who was, who is, and who is to come, which really fits this theme quite well. Uh, There will be all the PowerPoint slides that are pertinent. There will be room for notes, uh, handouts, everything that we've done. I think the ushers passed these out today. If not, you can get one on the back table. it's going to be $55 for the full set of 31 messages. Um, if you've, some of you said, I've already been ordering the messages. Or some of you say, I don't want the CDs, I don't need them, I can listen online. Uh, if you just want the notes and the notebook content, it's $25. We're not making any money on this. That's not the goal or the point, okay? But we, I did want to respond to people who say, I want this in hand. I want to be able to give this to somebody. I know people who really need to hear this. So... Can I throw in the magazine? No, but Larry in in your set there will be 31 uh coasters for glasses. They double as CDs. So, Linda Johnson will be in the family room to show you what it looks like it's a mock up right now. It's all not all done yet, but it's close to what it's going to look like and to take orders if you're interested. They should be hot off the presses and ready to be picked up, Lord willing, by the 17th of June. Okay? So those should be coming soon. All right. Um, I think that's enough infomercial. Here's where we're at in our study. All right? Now, you tell me where we're at in our study. Look at that and tell me where we're at. We're in third vision. Which part of it? Have we talked about Babylon's demise already? So we are ready to start talking about the coming king. Yay! A definite shift in tone, theme, and subject matter. As you heard Amy this morning say to you, are you ready to celebrate? We are going to tone that up a notch because we are at the point in this series where it is time to celebrate. I almost gave this series from here on out a new title. I almost said we should call it Game Over, and the winning is just beginning, because that's where we're at in this thing, okay? Now, just so you know, we're going to divide up chapters 19 and 20 into three sections, okay? We're not going to get through all of chapter 19 today, because... In these two chapters, we have the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and what's said about the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's no way we want to shortcut these things or short-circuit what needs to be said about them. So we're going to jump right in today, as has been our custom. We have asked someone to come and read the scripture we're going to be talking about today and ask you to stand as we do that to honor God's word. Jennifer Haynes is going to be our reader today. And today, Lord willing, we're going to get through chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. So, Jen, this is on. Thank you for helping us.
1: After these hangs, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was sitting on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God and all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." And he said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in the blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the wine presses of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.
0: Amen. Thank you. i give you a high five right now, but I don't know that that's quite appropriate although it almost is okay let's dive in shall we a lot to cover today after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Again... After these things is not a time-sequential issue as much as he's saying. And the next thing I saw was, so we got to remember this is not a time-sequential book. This loud voice, this great multitude is probably the same host of angels that we saw surrounding God's throne way back in chapter 5, verse number 11, okay? Hallelujah! A Hebrew word for praise ye Jehovah. You ever seen that word in your Bible before? Where? No, not everywhere. Old Testament. It shows up in the New Testament four times only. Right here in this little passage that we read today. Hallelujah. Praise ye Jehovah. Why? A lot of reasons given. Number one, his judgments are right and true. The comment to make at that point is... End of discussion. That settles it right then and there. Doesn't matter if you like it. Doesn't matter if I like his judgments. Doesn't matter if the whole world thinks, well, God, your judgments are just way too harsh. Or there's another group of people going, your judgments are way too lenient. God says, I really don't care what you think. Because the word from the throne of God is, his judgments are right and they are True, They are perfect. They come out of perfect wisdom with the perfect balance of grace and mercy and holiness, don't they? We are no one, no one is anyone to tell God that there's something wrong with how he ends this whole thing. With the conclusion he comes to in terms of rewards and blessings and judgments upon those who have ever lived on this world. And you see, God is now using, actualizing what has always been his. He has always been the one who holds the judgment. Now, at this point in the story, he's going to start using it. The judgment against the great harlot, Babylon. Remember, Babylon refers to the anti-God world system. They're not going to be judged and just declared guilty. That, sometimes we go there. That's it, and then they get their sentence and they just go off to prison. Folks, the context here is God is going to totally, totally remove everything on this earth that stands in the way of or tries in any way to frustrate or thwart or hinder His kingdom coming and his will being done in totality, in completeness. There's going to be nothing here anymore that does the least little thing to get in the way of that being fulfilled. And as long as Babylon stands, as long as there is a shred of Babylon anywhere, God's kingdom cannot come and his will cannot be done in totality, in its total fullness think about this. I know I've said this in weeks past, but think about this. This is the moment in time. How many of you have ever prayed the Lord's prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, we've looked at the prayers of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? This is it. I don't know how many millions of times the Lord's prayer has been prayed. This is it. Babylon's going to get what's coming to her when it says as we keep reading and a second time they said hallelujah her smoke rises up forever and ever that's the second hallelujah in this four part hallelujah smoke rising folks is an idiomatic phrase that says it is complete it is final it is utter the destruction of Babylon will be once and for all and forevermore and complete And in the smoke rising forever, there's also a picture of a continual reminder of what used to be there standing against the kingdom of God. It's not there anymore. It's just smoke. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worship God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Number three, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. We got 24 elders, we got four living creatures, we got the multitude of angels from the first verse. You could probably throw the fat lady in here right now because she's singing, okay? Because this is it. This whole heavenly chorus, a picture of the totality. Of the praise that will be in heaven, the worship in heaven towards Jehovah God. And this voice comes from the throne, almost a picture of a choir director going, Okay, everybody on the chorus now. And they enter into these these, these hallelujahs, this this fourfold hallelujah. Oh my golly, it's unbelievable. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. So the judgment against Babylon has been pronounced, but the vision and the revelation now kind of moves on from, okay, that's done. And we've looked at the last two chapters and seen what that's going to be all about. It is going to be total. Is it not? It's going to be utter. Is it not? It's going to be complete. Is it not? And it's as if there's a shift here that goes, okay, enough of that. That's going to happen. Done deal. To, to a focus on proclaiming the, the final triumph of God and his kingdom. Because really, isn't that what this is all about? This is about the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of darkness, the enemy, Babylon, all those things invaded the scene, made a stink for a while. But that's not what this is all about. This is about the plan of God from the beginning of time finally being consummated, finally being fulfilled. His ultimate redemptive purpose is on the doorstep right here and right now. And yet, folks, the the mystery of this book is there's still kind of an ebb and flow. We're going to keep on reading and we'll go back to a couple of these things as the judgment's cleaned up and as we see what's going to happen to people. It's not a timeline. It's a picture being painted, and the the artist moves and paints in different places at different times. We have to keep that in mind. But we are here now. We're at the end. This is not the first time, though, this kind of declaration has been made, is it? If you've been with us, you'll know that way back in chapter number 11, it said this in verse 15. This is not a PowerPoint slide. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ and he will reign forever and ever. It's reiterated here at this point and the timing is closer and closer and closer. There's a fluidity here of language, though, that I think sometimes escapes us. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. In the Greek, that's not a present tense verb. I'm not going to bore you with all this. It's something called an inceptive aorist tense verb. What it literally means is, hallelujah, he has begun to fulfill his reign. This thing has always belonged to the Lord Jesus, has it not? And yet, in his first coming, he brought the kingdom of God, did not abolish man's free will. We've still been in this struggle for the kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom is still coming, and it's progressing, and it's advancing, and it's someday going to come in its total fulfillment. It's always been his... But now it's really starting to ramp it up and and speed it up and and be activated and fulfilled completely, totally, finally in its perfect form. Game over. The winning is just beginning. That's what we see going on here. Now, here's a statement in this next verse that um, it's probably the same voice speaking as back in verse number one. But this is so easy to overlook or to miss if you don't understand and see the, the big picture, the, the whole picture of, of what the Bible says to us and teaches us in verses seven and eight, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. Rejoice and be glad. Literally, let us leap about. Let us be exuberant. Let us skip. This is, folks, this is full throttle joy. But I think sometimes we don't realize who this is being said to. That's the kind of thing our first thought is, oh, that's what you say to somebody who won the lottery. Rejoice and be glad. Jump for joy, skip around, dance and go, because that fits, right? It's not who this is said to, but it is something that Jesus said before one time. Do you remember where? The Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, listen to this. Blessed are those who have won the, no, it doesn't say won the lottery. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. That's the only other time that this is in scripture. And who's it said to? It said to those who've been persecuted. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Folks, I personally think that this is not a picture of lottery winners doing this little victory dance. I think it's a reminder to the martyrs that you have a special place in the heart of God. And martyrs, you have a special position in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'll be honest with you. That so far hasn't moved me to want to be one. But that doesn't change the fact that I absolutely believe there's a special place in the heart of God for those who have laid down their lives for the sake of the kingdom. Rejoice and be glad they need reminded of that. They're the same people who've been saying, Lord, how long until you avenge us? Well, here it is. Okay, let's go back to the put the next slide up verses seven and eight again. Rejoice and be glad, give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints the marriage supper is announced here. Like it's a done deal, but we really don't have any description of it. It's not expounded upon. I think it's very likely that when, when this is spoken, rejoice and be glad, give him the glory. The marriage supper of the lamb has come. Her bride has made himself ready. I have a sneaking suspicion that this marriage supper is what Jesus was talking about when he had the last supper with the disciples. Okay. And again, not a PowerPoint slide, but in Luke 22, he said these words, I earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I think Jesus sat there before he gave his life on that cross, knowing all things, knowing what the future held, and knew that was the moment that he was looking forward to. And I think it was the part of the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Because he knew there was a day coming when, when we who know him and love him we'll sit around that great banquet table with him and participate in this marriage supper. Is that going to be a great day or what? Oh, man. It's the bride who has made herself ready. Literally, it's it's the word wife. It's not just bride. And that is a description that God has of his people, whether you're talking about in the Old Testament, Israel, or in the New Testament, the church, bride, wife, because it's all about relationship. From the beginning, from the garden, the plan was what? Relationship with Adam and Eve and all those who would follow. It starts in a garden. It's going to end in a city called the New Jerusalem. But when we get to chapters 21 and 22, you're going to see it's all about relationship. That's the heart of what this thing is. The bride has made herself ready. What does that mean? Yet she was given what she was to wear. She was given her dress. How do you put those two things together? Folks, I think this is one of those spots where there's dynamic tension in what this relationship looks like that we have with God, how it's lived out, okay? On the one hand, the bride makes herself ready. What does that mean? I think that refers to what First John talks about in chapter number 3. First John 3, I want to read for you verses 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father excuse me, has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. You see, we're not just called the children of God. Excuse me. We are the children of God. That's who we are. Because of that, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And I think you could put parenthetically there, warts and all. And it has not yet appeared... As yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. And here's the punchline. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, because we have experienced firsthand the love of God and because we have this great hope of a someday reunion, a face to face reunion with him. Because we have that in us, we purify ourselves. And yet, I don't know about you. How how are you doing on purifying yourself? I shudder to tell you my story. It's embarrassing. Who laughed? Because I'll tell your story. And if I have to make it up, I'll do that. But the point is, we can't get there. If that's the only concept we had in scripture that Jesus is coming again, and I have to purify myself. Can I just quit now? Can we just all quit now? You see, you have to have context to this, and you have to understand the dynamic tension in this. I cannot purify myself. But this scripture isn't talking about some kind of self-effort that we're going to do to try and be like Jesus. You see, the other side of the coin, or the, the thing that gives context and balance to this is what we see in Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And here's what that love looks like and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. He having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Folks, whose ultimate job is it to purify us? It's his. And so what you have to understand in this is we're talking about a covenant relationship here. We're talking about a partnership here where I don't resist the grace of God, where I do what it tells me in Romans, I think it's 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So our job in this is to put on what he's handing us. It's a whole different kind of works mentality. Do you see the difference? You don't have to go out and sew your own clothes and make it fit and put it on and go through all the rigorous ordeal of trying to be holy, trying to be perfect, trying to be pure. I can't get there in me. Neither can you in you. But if we understand that Jesus has provided this for us, and it's a matter of putting on, yielding to, saying yes to the provision that he desires to give us, then we can get there, can't we? And you see, that's the work I believe God is doing in his church today. And there's still an awful lot of work to do. If you pay attention at all to the news and what's going on, you'll see that the church is still a mess And yet I'm so thankful that Jesus has never given up on his church. He's never going to give up on his bride. He's at work redeeming her, purifying her, doing that great work. So the work of purity, holiness, righteousness is a gift given to us. It's a work of God's grace on our behalf that we have to embrace and put on. You see, this gift. Working in your life and my life is, is connected to having a heart and a life that is inclined towards obedient living. Not because if I don't, he's going to get me, but because he loves me so much. the, The least I can do is, is yield myself to him in obedience. That's not work. That's totally different than, than working, trying to do something, trying to make something happen. So we earn something. This, this work connects to a heart and a life inclined towards obedient living and yet at the same time, it's a heart that can be brutally honest about the struggles. Lord, I blew it again. Lord, I did it again. Lord, I... Oh, God, help me. You see, God resists the proud. I don't have those kind of problems. I don't have those kind of struggles. But he gives grace to that kind of humility to bring those changes. Aren't you glad for that? I'm thrilled for that man, it's my, it's my salvation and yours too. Verse nine. Then he said to me, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. I don't know if you know this or not. We talked a couple minutes ago about the beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. Do you know that the book of the revelation has a series of beatitudes also? There are seven beatitudes in the book of the revelation. This is one of them. I think it's number four. I hope Lord willing, the last week of the series to, uh, to have a little handout for you that give you these Beatitudes from the book of the Revelation. It it should for sure be in the CD series that we're going to put out um, as well. But there's a blessing on those who are invited to the marriage supper. Did you notice, though, that this this party seems to be by invitation only? (laughs) Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this party is by invitation only. Theologically, I make a lousy Calvinist. If you don't know what that means, go home and look up Calvinism because I don't have time today. I absolutely believe that the Bible is true. This is by invitation only. And Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 44, No one, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This is a party. This marriage supper is by invitation only. But I want you to know Jesus also said that whosoever will may come. And so I don't think it's an exclusive invitation. I think there's only one way into the party and it's Jesus. But everybody's invited. And if you're sitting here today and you're wondering, am I going to this party? Let me, as God's representative, invite you to this party. And say to you that all you have to do is give your life to the Lord Jesus. To come to him in in saving faith. Believing that he died on the cross for your sins. That he rose again from the grave. Sits at the right hand of the Father. And is coming again for those who are his. All you have to do is believe that in your heart. Speak it with your mouth. Let somebody know that is what you believe. To become a follower of Jesus. You've just been invited to the party. And if you sat here today, not knowing if you were invited or not having accepted the invitation, it's up to you right now to decide if you want in on this party or not. If you are ready, if this is your moment to say yes to Jesus as savior and Lord, if the Holy Spirit's stern in your heart right now, by all means, before we go today, let somebody know that you've made that choice, that you've made that decision. Okay. I'll take that as an, okay. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think. This angelic being bothered to say these are the true words of God as a form of solemn assurance to John after he just witnessed these two chapters of of the aftermath, the destruction, all that he'd seen. These are the true words of God. This is going to happen. Not only is Babylon going to be destroyed, but there is a marriage supper of the lamb that is surely coming to those who are his. How real must this have been? How vivid must this have been? John's not sitting there having this vision, like watching something on a screen. Folks, he was living this thing. He had to be. He fell at the feet of this being to worship him. It's not like he's watching it on TV and falls down. He's, he's in there. He's in this thing. And the angelic being says, no, 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 no. Not about me. It's about him. I'm just, I'm a servant just, just like you are. I just, sometimes I, I was thinking earlier this morning about how vivid, how real this must have been for him to do that. That being had to be there. He was in the presence of that thing. Wow. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think in that case, the word prophecy is talking more about preaching which is one of the definitions of prophecy rather than the foretelling of the future. And I think what this means is the message of the gospel is only accomplished, it's only fulfilled through the Holy Spirit's prophetic ministry, the Holy Spirit causing the word to come alive in somebody's heart, to draw them to that place where they believe it and they receive it. I think that's what that one means. I should have had Matt Porter stay up here because this is the point in the story where we need a big drum roll. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except he himself. I think it's safe to call this the ultimate grand opening, don't you? Don't you? Yeah. I mean, we've seen two other openings so far. We've seen in Revelation chapter 4 that uh, John looked and there was a door open into heaven. And then later on in the story in chapter number 11, verse 19, the temple of God in heaven was opened. Folks, both of those are a, a picture, a view into what's going on in heaven. John, come up here. you are got to see this so you can report this to people. Folks, this is a dramatic shift. The first two open so that John can see what's going on. This time, heaven opens so the king can bring heaven, the kingdom, down here to this earth. Woo is the word. He's sitting on a white horse. Ooh. <laughs> he was sat on is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except he himself. I'm just a little overwhelmed right now, so I'll try and pull myself back together. I think Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 is one of the points at which the rapture of the church could take place. This is one of those spots where 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 seems to fit real well. I want to read that for you just so you can see how that might be the case. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have already died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died with faith in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died, fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. If you want on your own to do some extra study, go read Matthew chapter 24. Talks a lot more about the second coming. If this is the place where it happens, then it's a post-tribulation rapture that will take place. Again, not a puzzle to solve. Uh, That's my view. I sure hope I'm wrong. I would be way willing to be wrong on this one. But I think that's where it's going to happen. But rather than spending a lot of time debating that, Early in the series, I gave you all three different perspectives. A pre-tribulation view, a mid-tribulation, and a post-tribulation with a lot of scripture to support each point. Rather than going back and reviewing that, rather than focusing on what we don't know, let's take a couple minutes as we wrap this up and focus on what we do know, okay? Here's the first thing we know. Jesus is returning the same way that he left. How do we know that? Because the scripture says, Acts 111. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. So if you watched him go up, you're going to watch him come down. All right, next one. Same principle, Matthew 24, 30. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is Jesus coming back to deal with, to take care of his enemies. Is he going to come back in some little corner in a secret kind of way? You know, anytime you read a story that talks about the Messiah has just been revealed in Eastern Europe and he's waiting for the day to make himself known. There's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. (laughs) He's not coming that way. He's coming for everybody to see. I hate to pick on people, but can you imagine someone like Bill Maher at this moment, if he's still alive on this planet when Jesus comes again, I shudder to say what he would say in that moment. But every, everybody's gonna see this, folks. It's not gonna happen in, in a corner somewhere. Here's another thing that we know the second coming of Jesus Christ brings kind of a threefold convergence to God's ultimate plan. The threefold plan was the cross, the resurrection, And the return. In the cross. Next, Roland. It fulfilled the judicial requirements. Paid in full was stamped on our record, on our behalf, in terms of sin and the separation it caused to our relationship. But the resurrection was the thing that restored life to us as believers in our body, soul, and spirit. Not a PowerPoint slide, but... This is what we have to understand. Romans 5.10 says this. For if while we were enemies, we we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's what the cross did. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, it's not his death that saved us. It's his death that paid the price. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is what gives life, which quickens our body, soul, and spirit. But there's more to God's plan than just that. There's the return. And in the return is the consummated, fully and finally completed plan of God, which is ultimate and total victory. That's what this is about. That's what I'm talking about. Very quickly, I'm going to put this up, read through it, and we'll put it back up at the end. For those of you who really like to take notes and want to make sure you have this all, five purposes in Christ's coming as the scripture tells us. Number one, he's coming for the church and scriptures are listed next to that. Number two, he's coming to save Israel. We have talked throughout this series. It's not either or it's both. And he's got a plan bigger than we think sometime. Number three, he's coming to overthrow Satan, the antichrist, the false prophet. Number four, he's coming to judge the Gentiles and the Gentile nations. And finally, number five, he's coming to establish his millennial kingdom. We'll talk about that next week and we'll put that back up in a couple minutes, but let's get back to the star of the show. Okay. To the ultimate grand opening. I saw heaven open. Behold a white horse. First thing God wants you to see is that white horse. You know why? Cause this is all about victory and you know what conquering Kings rode into conquered kingdoms upon a white horse. So clear as anything folks, he's the conqueror. We win cause he won and he wins. He's called faithful and true. He's the one that's going to finish what he started. It talks about here he's faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except he himself. He's going to finish what they started. And when I say they, I'm not talking about the enemy. He's going to finish what the Godhead in covenant started at the beginning of time. It's the fulfillment of the plan of God. In righteousness, he judges. We've already looked at that earlier in verse 2. His judgments are true and righteous. They're not arbitrary. They're not whimsical. They're not based on any anger or negative emotion. They are perfect. Perfectly holy. Perfectly righteous. Perfectly merciful and just. His eyes are a flame of fire. Folks, if ever you wanted a picture of something or someone who is all searching and all knowing and soul piercing, that's what those eyes are. Nothing escapes his notice. There's nothing hidden and nothing evil will escape or stand against him. He's got a crown of many diadems on his head. That's what conquering kings wore. Diademed crowns. It's a crown of royalty because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When this... Happens in final form, his rule is totally going to be completed and enforced. In First Corinthians chapter 15, there's a sequence of the final events given us there. After the first sentence, it gets to the important part. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If you're in Christ, you will come back to life to spend eternity with him. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, Here it is. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. What's going to happen at the end? When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he abolishes all rule, all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. How many enemies is he going to put under his feet? Every single one. This is going to be completed once and for all and forevermore. He's got a name on him that no one knows except he himself. It's not faithful and true. It's not word of God. It's not king of kings and Lord of lords. I think it's something too deep for us to fathom on this side of seeing him. And I think when we see that name, we're all going to go. And yet I think we're also going to go. I just kind of knew it i just kind of to the degree we have relationship it's going to it's going to overwhelm us and awe us and kind of not surprise us all at the same time okay let's wrap this up he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses make yourself a note at that point to go look at isaiah chapter 63 it's talking there about treading the, the wine of the fierce wrath of God. And folks, I believe that this robe dipped in blood. Some scholars think that's his own blood from the cross. I don't think so because this is a conquering king. And I think it's the blood of his enemies that are on his, that's on his robe at this point in time. It's a picture of a war conqueror and it's going to be a bloody mess, but we win and he wins Now, just so there's no mistaking who we're talking about here, his name is called the Word of God. Let's read this next scripture aloud together, please. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The name on him is Word of God. It's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son. All right, put the next slide back up. These armies which are coming with him are clothed in fine linen that's white and clean and they're following him on white horses. So they're a part of this victory. They're on white horses too. How come he's got a robe dipped in blood and these people are in fine linen that's white and clean? What's up with that? No armor. No, no weapons. No help needed, thanks. That's the point. His armies, be it angels or the saints resurrected, coming back with him, they're not going to be a part of this fight. Why? Well, let's keep reading. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? Spoke them into being. Is it a stretch of the imagination at all to think that he also might speak against the portion of that creation that has rebelled against him and turned against him? And if he's got enough power to speak it into being, I personally think he has enough power to take it out the same way he brought it in. Don't you? (laughs) He doesn't need any help. These armies are along for the victory parade. Not, hey, get in there and fight for me and with me. By this point in the story, folks, it's over. He needs no help. I want to finish with this. When Jesus comes again, here's one thing for sure that we know is going to happen. And worship team, why don't you make your way back up here at this point if you would. This is after it talks about Jesus humbling himself, becoming a man, going to the cross, giving his life for us, his very life for us. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That very well could refer to the name that no one knows except him until this point in time. So that at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, that is an all-encompassing statement about what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. There's going to be a group of people called the saints, called his followers, called believers, called the chosen, called the redeemed, called whatever you want to call them, who will bow their knee in worship and praise and adoration and thanksgiving to him for saving them. But every knee is going to bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Folks. Every person, even every person a part of Babylon, a part of that anti-God world system is also at some point in time going to bow their knee. Not in faith, not in rejoicing, but in utter humiliation and in utter remorse and regret that they refused when there was still time to bow their knee appropriately, correctly on this side Of the end of time. But every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. It is the truth. That Jesus Christ. Is Lord. Are you a little bit glad today. That you get to choose to bow your knee. On this side of that moment. Man I am.